Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 will be our text for this morning. Uh, Two weeks ago, we wrapped up chapter 3 and looked at how Nebuchadnezzar rewarded Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for their unwillingness to compromise their faith and the glory of their God. You remember how the story went, right? They wouldn't bow to the golden statue, and they were thrown into this fire, fiery furnace, and they were delivered. It was just an amazing thing. And so it's crazy that by the time it's all said and done, a pagan, unbelieving king would reward them for their faith and steadfastness. But that's what happened. They got these promotions. So we wrapped up chapter 4 by looking at the end of that story, and uh, I was really encouraged. And then last Sunday, we had Gordon Rumble here, which was a a nice uh, treat to hear someone else preached the word, and he did a fine job, and I'm still kind of reflecting on uh, what he taught and the whole idea of being a sheep and needing a good shepherd, and I just thought it was really good. And by the way, that sermon is posted now on our website, and it's only about 40 minutes long, so uh, it was quick. Of course, I tried to preach another sermon after he was done uh, on communion, uh, but I cut that part off, just so you know. Uh, But go back and listen to it. It was really encouraging. So today we're going to begin to look at chapter 4, which so far, in my estimation, is just marvelous. It's just incredible. I had all uh, the intention of of preaching chapter 4 in two weeks and then realized after getting into the study this week that I couldn't even get past the first three verses uh, for the first message, so there's no way that I could begin to try to tackle this whole chapter in two weeks. So we're going to spread it out a little bit. It's really, really good. Uh, It looks like the events of chapter four, what took place here, the second dream and all that's involved there happened somewhere between 20 and 30 years after the fiery furnace. So, of course, you might remember that... uh, uh, You know, there was 20 years between uh, kind of the beginning narrative and then chapter 2, and then now we see 20 to 30 more. So we're talking like 50 years later since chapter 1, roughly 50 years later, which is just crazy. It just goes to show that Daniel's recording the key events and things that took place while he was in Babylon, not every little thing. So this particular narrative, these things happen 20 to 30 years after the fiery furnace. So Daniel is now 45 to 55 years old. Remember when we started, he was like 14, 12, 13, 14. So now he is 45 to 55 years old, and he has been ministering to King Nebuchadnezzar on and off for roughly 40 years, which is mind-blowing. What a ministry. And I want to just kind of build some foundation for this whole chapter. Uh, Obviously, we're not going to look at the whole chapter today, but we need to kind of set some context and stage for where we're going and kind of the things that are happening in in this text. I would say that perhaps the most destructive attitude of all is pride, right? Biblically speaking, we could consider pride. We could consider pride a, a, a really bad attitude. And, and I think that it's the most destructive of all the attitudes or behaviors that we can exhibit. Um, pride has damned not only Satan and his angels, but also men and women throughout history. Pride is 
worthy of condemnation because it violates the first commandment, right? You know, the big ten, have no other gods before God himself, Exodus 20, verse 3. God alone is to be worshipped and served because his will and his person is supreme, not ours. And what pride means is that we think of ourselves as supreme. Uh, Pride asserts that man should take supremacy over God. God said through the prophet Isaiah, my glory I will not give to another. That's in chapter 48, verse 11. God will not, under any circumstances, tolerate a usurper who attempts to rise above him. And you would think to yourself, well, there's been lots of that throughout history, and lots of people have exalted themselves above God. It looks to me like he tolerates it. Well, where are those people? You know, maybe some of them are still around, but they're probably not going to be around for long. So, I mean, in the ultimate sense, God does not tolerate it when people, when his creation, his created beings, his own image bearers exalt themselves above him. He doesn't tolerate it for long. He always does something about it. The book of Proverbs gives us, gives us insight into how God actually feels about pride. Uh, I think the book of Proverbs is probably one of the best places to look because it's got these short, quick, proverbial sayings that have a lot of impact on a lot of subjects. Proverbs 21 verse 4 says, haughty eyes, which are proud eyes, and a proud heart, uh, and he refers to the haughty eyes as the lamp of the wicked. So if you're a prideful person, you have these kind of eyes of pride. When you look at things and you're estimating and evaluating how much better you are than everything else that you're seeing, you have haughty eyes and a haughty um, attitude, and it's just sin is all that it is. It's just sin before a holy God. Proverbs six sixteen through 19, uh, and some of you might already know the passage. It talks about six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination. Have you ever heard that passage before? Um, one of them, of the seven things that are an absolute abomination to God, uh, is a proud look. That would be haughty eyes. So, <laughs> pride is, is on his top list of most hated sins, you know. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart, that's pride, is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. That's about as clear a warning as you can get when it comes to pride. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, is what God says there. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before what? The fall or destruction and a haughty or haughty. How do you pronounce that? Paul, is it haughty? Haughty, okay. Like, yeah, not like people use it today, like he's a haughty, okay. Yeah, that's pretty dumb. Uh, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So what follows A haughty spirit or a prideful attitude, a prideful disposition is a fall. A fall from whatever you're in, destruction, what have you. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. (laughs) The funny thing is the scripture counters that with one's humility will bring him high. It doesn't say that there. That's my own proverb. But scripture says repeatedly that pride will bring a person to ruin, to lowness, but 
God exalts the humble and raises up the humble. And humility and pride are really opposites. And lastly, Proverbs 11:2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. So, so a fall or destruction or disgrace, those are the kinds of things that always follow pride. And why is that? Because God does not allow it to go unchecked. He doesn't. He hates that sin. Pride is a serious sin that is condemned repeatedly throughout Scripture. It is an abomination because it desecrates the name of God. And it also brings about destruction because the end of pride is judgment. Why am I saying this to you? Because in Daniel chapter 4, we meet a proud man. One who has literally reached the pinnacle, total and absolute height of his pride. Nebuchadnezzar was the monarch of the first of four empires that ruled his part of the world, Mesopotamia, this whole region, the Fertile Crescent, the Middle East, if you will. As king of such a great empire, he became proud and set himself up as God. So his pride had reached this kind of climactic moment where he didn't really think of other gods and things. He thought of himself as God himself, as a demigod or God in the flesh, if you will. I mean, that's just the height of pride. That's about as far as you can go where you start touting yourself as a god. He had, what, a 90-foot golden image of himself built, and he forced people to bow down and worship it, right? We looked at that in chapter 3. However, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do so, they were thrown into a fiery furnace, right? Such was the strength of Nebuchadnezzar's ego. But in Daniel 4, God brings him down and then restores him after he repents and believes. So he reaches the height, he's crushed, and then he's restored once he repents. Pretty amazing. Now, Daniel 4 is certainly a historical account of Nebuchadnezzar, but it's more than that. Nebuchadnezzar stands as a symbol of several things. First, he is a symbol of any leader who exalts himself. Okay? He is a warning to all the Stalins, Hitlers, Mussolinis, Kim Jong-un, all of the North Korean leadership, any kind of leader at all that establishes themselves in this way. Here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is a warning to those types of men and women, people who pridefully seek to establish their empires in place of God, in place of God. But he is also a warning to those of us who desire to rule the little empires we invent within ourselves, <laughs> in which we crown ourselves as king, right? And I tell you, there's much more of that kind of idolatry going on than anything else. Most people think of themselves as the primary, what have you. Nebuchadnezzar also serves as a, a symbol of how God deals uh, with all the proud empires of the times of the Gentiles, this period that we're in. He crushed the Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, right? We see that throughout history, not in Daniel's narrative. We see the warning that that's coming, but when we evaluate or estimate or examine history, we see that God has brought all of those prideful empires to an end. And there will be, and we'll talk about it when we get to chapter 7, 
sort of a, a revived kind of Roman Empire. It's kind of the last one that is established. It, it, it almost looks like the Roman Empire, and that's the one that will ultimately be destroyed and replaced by the kingdom of Christ. That's when the stone comes and brings an end to all of the earthly kingdoms. But God, is, he, he deals with kingdoms. He deals with prideful leaders. He does. Daniel 4, just more information about the chapter, building foundation, since we're going to be in it for a little while. Daniel 4 is also the climax of Nebuchadnezzar's spiritual biography. The Lord began his work on him by bringing Daniel and his three friends into his life, right? They were exiled into, you know, Nebuchadnezzar brought them into his kingdom, his area. That was God bringing them into his life. When they defied him by not accepting, we're going back to chapter 1, when he defied them by not accepting the royal food and drink, he was immediately confronted by their unique integrity, understanding, and wisdom. Characteristics far superior to those of anyone in his own kingdom. After God established their credibility before Nebuchadnezzar, he enabled Daniel to solve an incredible dream that no one else in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom knew about could describe it all or interpret, right? We looked at that. So what we're seeing is a process that God has the king in. Struck by Daniel's divinely given capability of knowing and interpreting visions and dreams, Nebuchadnezzar was led to an even deeper understanding of God. When Daniel's three friends refused to obey the decree to worship Nebuchadnezzar's image, they were thrown into a fiery furnace, but miraculously protected by one like the Son of the Gods. Daniel 3, right? Verse 25. Again, Nebuchadnezzar saw God at work. You see the pattern. In Daniel 4, we will see what I believe is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion to faith in the one true God. That's what we see. Some commentators have appropriately entitled the chapter The Conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I've divided uh, our passage that we're looking at, which is just a tiny little chunk, into two sections because there's really two main things that are happening here. We're going to look at, firstly, we'll look at the authorship and scope of uh, the letter, and just so that you know that chapter 4 is written in letter form, it is a letter, and so we're going to look at the authorship and scope of the letter in verse 1a, and then we're going to look at the king's primary objectives for writing the letter, really, in verses 1b through 3, and I think that it would be befitting that we pray before we go any further. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you and before your word. We ask that you be merciful and illuminate us with your spirit so that we can hear, comprehend, apply, live out your word, live out your instructions, and bring you much praise and glory. We ask that you sanctify us now. We ask that you make us a little bit more like Christ as we yield and submit to you during this time and as the Spirit takes the truth and applies it to us. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, guys. You ready? Here we go. We're going to look at uh, A, authorship and scope of the letter, verse 1a. 
And uh, some of these things will probably move quicker than others. I think most of the meat is on the back end in the second point. Uh, but let's take a look at the authorship and scope of the letter. Verse 1a, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So that's the initial part of Nebuchadnezzar's greeting. Really, verses 1 through 3 make up the greeting on his letter. It's his salutation, if you will. And the first thing that we notice about it is that he self-identifies himself as the author. King Nebuchadnezzar. He's basically saying, King, hey, I'm writing this to you. King Nebuchadnezzar, it's coming from me. So what do we notice? It's a letter and it is written by him. He's the actual author of chapter 4. How crazy is that? He's a pagan king. Well, not at this point he isn't. But is he an inspired author of Scripture? Well, in some sense he is here, I guess. But basically the point is, is that this is written by him. These are his words. Now, he could have been dictating to Daniel or to someone, but for the most part, this is him speaking in first person which is pretty astonishing to me. He is the author of chapter 4. And some people say, well, he wrote this section of chapter 4 and that section and all that. But if you really look at the section closely, you'll see that he calls Daniel Belshazzar all the time, and that's the Babylonian name, and Daniel would never refer to himself in that name. And So there's a lot of little intricate little truths that say that he's the total and absolute author. He wrote it, but I would say without a doubt that Daniel assisted him. Okay. Daniel was there when he wrote it. Daniel may have penned it. He might have been reciting, hey, this is what I want to send out, what have you. And Daniel might have been the actual scribe for this. Who knows how it actually played out. But he is the author. And not only that, but this chapter, this letter, is actually Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony. Literally. You know, if you were to write a letter to someone and say, look, you know, hey, I just wanted to tell you how you doing, whatever, uh, you know, I wish you well, blah, 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 blah. You give a nice little greeting and salutation, then you go down to describe how you came to know the Lord. You would, that would be a letter containing your testimony, and that is exactly what chapter 4 is. It is a letter, and it is his testimony, and it was written by him. He literally shares the events that led up to his conversion and what happened after he repented and believed. That's, that's what's going on in this chapter. Pretty amazing. In terms of scope, you know, where, who it was written to, who was supposed to get it and read it, well, this letter, this chapter, is addressed to his entire kingdom, is it not? Uh, it's written, addressed to who? All peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Uh, how far-reaching was his kingdom throughout the earth? at least his idea of what the earth was, and that was this massive region uh, that his kingdom had spread throughout. And so the scope of it is that it was addressed to his entire kingdom. What does that mean? Nebuchadnezzar has written out his testimony and is sending it out to his entire kingdom. Everyone who lives within his kingdom. And I would say that the way that Nebuchadnezzar is viewing this whole situation or his kingdom is that he's looking at his kingdom as his mission field. That's his target. That's his Jerusalem. You know, take the 
gospel out to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. He wants to begin by sharing the gospel, which is represented by his testimony. He wants to take it and he wants it to spread throughout his entire kingdom. And he sends this letter out to do that very bit of work. Astonishing. He wanted every people, nation, and language to read, if they could, or to hear his testimony. That's his mission field, Babylonia. Astonishing. Now, ne- uh, actually, Matthew 28, 19, uh, you may have time to flip there. If not, just trust me in this. But it tells us that our mission field is, is much larger or has a much wider scope than his. And I would say Babylonia is pretty, pretty darn big then. You know, it was a very, very, very large kingdom. Not as large as the Greek or Roman kingdoms, but it was certainly very large. But Matthew 28, 19 tells us that our mission field as believers, as Christians, where we're to take the gospel is much, much more extensive and larger, far-reaching than Nebuchadnezzar's, right? Uh, That particular text says, go therefore and make disciples, right? You proclaim the gospel, you teach them all that Christ commanded, you get them baptized and, and teach them the Lord's Supper and all that, right? All that that entails, you do that, and it says make disciples of all nations, not one kingdom, not one country, not one community, of all nations. And then over in Mark 16, 15, it says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Go into all the world. Now, that's, that's some scope. That's a large territory. And then in Luke 24, 47, it says, Basically, proclaim the gospel. I've got that bracketed because that's not the way that it's worded, but that's what the author intends. Proclaim the gospel to what? All nations beginning in Jerusalem, beginning in your community, right where you live. And so, Nebuchadnezzar authored the letter and the scope of it was to go out and, in a, and, and the whole purpose of it is to evangelize, to share his testimony so that people can come to know God. And we have a mission like his, but our, the scope of our mission is much broader and wider and bigger. It includes tribes in New Guinea and people everywhere. And the question that I had for me and, of course, that I have for you is when's the last time that any of us shared our testimony or the gospel with anyone? It's pretty easy just to get kind of wrapped up in the mechanism of daily life and just do what you do and to be captivated by all of this garbage politics. Oh, what will we do if he wins or she wins? And, you know, it's got so much focus. That's why we're doing a three-week series on it because I'm fed up with myself and with other believers for really, literally... We have a mission, and the scope of it is huge that not any one of us in a thousand lifetimes could accomplish it, but we can certainly make a little dent of it in our own community, and here we are enamored with and wrapped all up in politics. You know what politics are? Chaff. They do not endure forever and ever. So I was convicted. It's like, when's the last time I actually just told someone about, okay, look, here's who I was and here's what I was doing and then God came in power and, you know, when's the last time I authored a letter and sent it out to my little kingdom? We have a mission 
And that's going to be something that we keep coming back to in this passage because Nebuchadnezzar is on mission. He is on mission. You know, you got this whole process from chapter 1 to chapter 4, right? He's, he has no idea who God is. He starts to come to know Him a little bit in small increments. God's revealing Himself and humbling Him. And then he comes to know God, and the first thing that he does is become a missionary. Is that the first thing that happened to us when we first got saved? Now, I don't want to shame you. Because I got to shame myself. This is just about recalibrating and getting us back in a kingdom mindset, right? And how apropos is this subject now in light of the, po- the politics and the election and everything else, where you know as well as I do, just be honest. Have, are you a little frustrated right now and confused as to what to do? Have you put in a little bit of juice? Have you posted things on Facebook or had conversations with people about this election? Just be honest. Just be honest. Put your hand up if you want to be honest. Some of you guys are horrible liars. Yeah, I said horrible liar, and Andrew goes, okay, I did. Okay, if you're not posting stuff and talking to people about it, is there just a 1% of inner turmoil? Like, what do we do? What is this? Right? Oh, this is the perfect time to get back to what we are to be about as Christian people. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, let me get your attention here. <laughs> right? So, this authorship and scope, we've covered that. Now, let's look at the main thrust and the beef, Wellington. I don't know why. How about tri-tip? How about filet mignon of this text, right? So, first, authorship and scope, and then B, the king's primary objectives. Here's the, the, the goal of the letter, of his testimony, right? Verses 1b through 3. I tried to make this message very, very practical for you because that always helps, I think. It does me. Verses 1b through 3, and we're going to break that down. We're going to look at three things that represent his primary objective. Or maybe we would say that these three things represent his primary objectives. He wanted these three things to be accomplished to happen through the writing of this letter. So we'll look at it like that. Number one would be to make the peace of God known to his people. To make the peace of his God. Maybe we should say to make the peace of his new God known to his people. And that's represented in verse 1b. What does it say? Peace be multiplied to you. Exclamation point. I just want you to think about Babylon for a moment. We have talked about it quite a bit in 13, 14, 15 weeks now. I think this is our 15th week. We have talked about it a lot. I want you to think about Babylon for a moment. It was a divided kingdom in terms of race and religion. Was it not? Nebuchadnezzar had gone out and conquered so many people groups. He, he was almost like Alexander the Great. When he ran out of worlds to conquer, he didn't, there was no life to live. Nebuchadnezzar had basically annihilated everything around him and had taken all of these people captive under his own kingdom, under his own roof, so to speak. It was a cultural melting pot, not to mention that it was a religious melting pot because 
all the surrounding nations had different religions and different gods and astral deities and things that they worshipped. And so you had a cultural melting pot with all these different ethnicities in all of these different religions. I mean, it was literally comprised of dozens of ethnicities and religions. And it, 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 you know, with all of those different types of people groups, there's always the tendency for racism. Different colors, different style, whatever. So I, I guarantee you there was... I mean, we're talking about the Middle East. Is there not racism there today? Has there not been racism there since day one? Absolutely. So they were dealing with race issues, just as we are seemingly dealing with here, or at least the media wants us to think that. There were race problems. There were race issues in his kingdom. And there were religious issues. There was religious division. Our gods are better than your gods. My God, your God. There was the inbiting, infighting, that kind of division. It existed within his kingdom. And this is one of the reasons why he built the golden statue. That's it. I can't handle any more gods. My pantheon's full. You know, and I can't handle the racial tension. It's just ridiculous. And so what does he do? He erects the golden statue to do what? To unify everyone in his kingdom under his gods and under him. There's going to be one people here. No, you're not this. You're not Italian. You're not Irish. You're not this. You're American. You're not this, you're not that. You're Chaldean. Well, you're not Chaldean because that's the actual race. You're Babylonian. That's what I'll call you. You're Babylonian people under a Babylonian ruler, me. So enough with the other religions. Enough with the division and strife and racism. I want peace in my kingdom. I want you to worship my gods. I want you to worship me. I'm tired of this. He builds the statue. But of course... The plan of unifying and all that failed when three humble Jews <laughs> rejected publicly in front of a multitude his plan, right? Well, you can just throw us in there. We're not going to bow and become a part of what you're doing. We're going to worship our God. You can tell us there's no other gods. America, you can tell us that we can't worship God, but we're going to worship him. They took a stand. And what did that do? That flambeed, that torpedoed, that tostaded his whole plan publicly. It did not work because of those three guys. And then he rewards them. That makes no sense. I think it was a little bit of fear of their God there. Oh, wow, he can deliver them from fire. Maybe I should take him seriously. I'm going to write a decree. Don't everyone, anyone ever slander or malign his name. I don't want to deal with it. Craziness. This is why he did this, there was the, the racial tensions and problems and religious mix that was creating these crazy dynamics. And at this point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he wanted his people to know true peace. I think for the first time. Now, it's, it's not wrong for any pagan king who doesn't know Jesus, any pagan ruler, to want peace for his kingdom. That's pretty natural, I guess. But with Nebuchadnezzar, it's a little different. He's not talking about just, I want peace in my kingdom, or what he was trying to establish through the erection of the golden statue and unifying everyone. Peace would have been a goal, but at this juncture in his life, he wants them to experience true peace. 
And he wants that peace to be multiplied throughout his kingdom. Now, here's where it gets incredible. If you have a reference Bible, and what that means is that there's going to be a little letter or number, a little letter actually, right there at that phrase, peace be multiplied to you. If you trace that, if you look in your column and find what that's linked to, you're going to find that it's linked to 1 Peter and 2 Peter in the New Testament, which was written hundreds of years later. The events of the New Testament took place over 600 years later or so, maybe 500. Actually, this was about 550, so yeah, 455, whatever. So this phrase is linked to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where the apostle Peter, right, Jesus' right-hand man, he addressed his audiences, the people whom he was writing to. He begins his letters, okay? Nebuchadnezzar wrote a letter, and he began his letter by saying, peace be multiplied to you. Peter does the same thing. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> Tied right to Nebuchadnezzar's declaration or desire or whatever you want to call it, greeting. The peace that Peter spoke of here is the peace that transcends all understanding. It is the peace that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is the peace of God. It is the peace that one experiences with the Father through the atoning, sacrificial, restoring work of Jesus Christ. This is true peace that Peter speaks of. Peter knew this peace. He'd spent most of his life without it. And when he got a taste of it, he wanted the people that he wrote to a little later on to get a taste of it. He knew they had it to a degree because he was writing to scattered believers, but he wanted that peace to be multiplied in their midst. He wanted that true peace to just resonate and spread and ooze over and touch everyone in a fresh way here. Peter knew this peace. Peter was resting in this peace. How many of you today are resting in this peace? Does your Facebook testify that you're resting into it? Or are you posting a thousand things against Hillary or Trump? I don't think you're resting in it if you're mixed up in this mix. Or if you're like me, because of our financial situation at the church and our building situation, and I'm one of these guys that just keeps saying, God's got it all covered. For some reason, after our elder meeting this week, I thought the bottom was going to fall out. Peace left me quickly. What do we do? Do we have this peace? We should, because we believe in Jesus. Because we, and peace, ultimately, what am I talking about? It's about peace with the Father. And are we resting it? Is it being multiplied in us? Is it manifested? Is it being multiplied in us and in our little communities and groups and people and families and all these things? You know, Peter knew about this piece. He had tasted it. It blew his mind. He was resting in it. And he writes this in his letters both times, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. They both begin with it. He writes it both times. Why? Because he wanted his readers to know this peace, the scattered elect, what were they doing? Suffering persecution at the hands of false teachers. And here is what is incredible 
because of the link, long before Peter was ever born, Nebuchadnezzar had come to know this peace for the first time ever when he was converted. And what is he doing here? He's doing what Peter did. Peter was writing to scattered believers. There's a little difference. He wasn't being all that missional or evangelistic. He was writing to us. But Nebuchadnezzar wants unbelievers, pagans like he was formerly, just probably weeks before, who knows how long before. He wants them to discover and to know this peace. He has the same intent as Peter. I've got this peace now. And I want my kingdom, I want my people, I want people, nations, tongues, language, I want them to know what it's like. There ain't nothing like it. That's what's going on here. It's, and for Nebuchadnezzar it would be a prophetic thing, he was believing in the Messiah to come because that's part of the Old Testament faith, but somehow he had the peace of the Lord by faith and he wanted As Peter did, he wanted people to experience it. One of the objectives of his, primary objectives of him writing is for them to come to know this peace. The only way for them to come to know this peace is for them to come to know his God. The entire world is chasing after peace right now. It's what people long for. It's what people hope for. And they will never find it unless they come through Christ to God. You know, Christ is the mediator. He is the one who establishes the line of peace and joy and all of these things. You come to the Father through the Son. And if you want to know true peace. And maybe you say, well, I know Jesus, but I still don't have peace. Well, maybe you need to evaluate your life and look at what you're doing. Maybe you need to come back to square one and come back to the basics of faith and commitment to the things that actually matter, the means of grace and the fellowship and the areas, the places. You're going to find this kind of peace that we're talking about at your workplace if you work over at Hunts or something like that? No. You're not going to really find it outside of the body. You're certainly not going to find it outside of the Word. And if if you're not committed to the things where the means of grace and the peace and those things are spoken of and and, and where the power is, then of course life's going to be a mess. You know, one of his objectives was to make this peace known to his people. And one of our main objectives as believers is to make the peace of God known to those around us. How can we do it? How, how do we do this? Well, I have a twofold method for you. Number one, we can model God's peace. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul lays out a, a kind of template for evangelism, and that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing for us here. 1 Peter, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul lays out a little template for evangelism. The whole chapter begins with it. In verse 1, he says, make supplications, pray, intercede. And, and, and he says to do it for world leaders and just all every kind of office and governmental official and person that you can possibly think of. Make supplications, pray, intercede. That, that's just basically pray for people. And I think that all evangelism, 
all of Christian ministry should begin with those three things, right? Supplications, prayer, intercession. Pray, 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 pray. How often do we get out there and start getting into stuff and we haven't prayed? And then we're defeated and things don't turn out and we get discouraged. So Paul lays out a little template for evangelism. He begins by saying in verse 1, pray, intercede, supplicate, do those kinds of things. And here it is. In verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. (laughs) Leading a peaceful and quiet life will often capture the attention of panicky people, won't it? It does. Remember, we're talking about modeling God's peace here. And how do we model it? We lead a peaceful life and quiet life. You know how hard that is for an extrovert like me? Not so much as the peace, but the quiet. What? I mean, my wife's telling me all the time to be quiet. Maybe I should start listening to her. My kids are like, oh my gosh, there goes dad again. He's yelling at a movie. You know? I'm telling you, when you lead a peaceful and quiet life, it will at times capture the attention of panicky people. Right? They they begin to ask questions. Yeah, they see your behavior or lack thereof. And they they ask, they're like, what is going on with Veronica? They say, how do you keep it together, Lily? Lily's thinking this last week. She had a really hard week. She's probably thinking, I wasn't all that peaceful or quiet. <laughs> right? We were talking before the service. She's like, this life was, this week was terrible. And I'm like, amen, sister. If you're leading a peaceful life, people will say, how do you keep it together? What's your secret? Why isn't your Facebook lit up with political rhetoric? What a... Are you unaware? I've had people tell me this, and you know, I've given them reason to because I abstain it most of the time from getting into stuff. Sometimes I see a little something, I'm like, yes, put it on there. Then about 10 minutes later, no, pull it off. Right? We do that, right? Rachel's like, you're doing it. You're turning your page into a political page. No, I'm not. Then I go look at the 55,000 posts that came after, and I'm like, yeah, I did. Then I delete it. People are like, where'd that great post go? I vanquished it. In a moment of weakness, I put it up. Why isn't your Facebook, right, when, you, when, you, when you're peaceful and, and you're subdued and kind of quiet and just reserved, right, you're just in the Lord and in his peace, people will say these things. What's your secret? Why are you not going crazy? Why isn't the election driving you crazy? Now, now is the time when somebody comes and asks why you're doing what you're doing or not doing anything in response. This is where you employ the second part, right? It's a twofold. So you have modeling it. Here's where the second, you respond, right? We can tell of God's peace. So it's not just modeling it, but we can also tell of it like Nebuchadnezzar is doing. The election's going crazy. Your Facebook page is quiet. Aren't you concerned about who's going to be the next president? And all? If Hillary gets it, oh, my Lord. If Trump gets it, oh, you know, ah, 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 how do you do it? And then you employ the telling of God's peace. You respond, I got the peace of the Lord that transcends all understanding, homie. That's how I keep it together. That's how I keep cool. Wait a minute. Is there an election going on? Right? 
You mean to tell me there's an election going on right now? Yeah, are you that dense? No, I'm just not like you. I'm just not letting it rule me. I'm a citizen of heaven. I have a king on a throne. I have the peace that transcends all understanding. It's all in God's hands. I'm not a fatalist. I'll go vote, but man, I am not. And guess what? You're not even going to know who I'm going to vote for. What happened to the secrecy and the privacy of elections? That is, a, that is a, a constitutional right to you for you to exercise your vote. What happened to just you going down and doing what you want to do instead of it all being publicized and out there? And guess what I went down and did? I remember years ago, this, this Christian brother of mine, he, he, he put on Facebook, it's like the election of Obama the first time, and he put on there, and he kind of left it out there where people would be wondering what's going on, and he said, you'll never guess what I did. You voted for Obama. Yep. Well, you just told me something about yourself. You don't really care about the unborn. Whatever happened to, you know, fine, you go vote for him, whatever. You vote for her, whatever. You vote for Trump, whatever. Whatever happened to you going down and doing your thing? Maybe the only other person knows about what you did was your spouse. And maybe you didn't want to even tell her because <laughs> she light you up. Now, you see, when you model it and then when you tell of it, it's just, that's, that's where it's at, man. You can actually have peace in the midst of all that's going on and playing out. And this, I'd have to tell you, this is probably the craziest election I've ever seen. I'm going to be 47 years old next week. Happy birthday. That's old. I think I'm right there with you, brother. This is the, this is the most wildest, craziest one I've ever seen. And I've got to have this peace. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, man, he, 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 he told of God's peace. He shared God's peace. I'll tell you what, when you combine the two, the modeling and telling, you will become a powerful witness to God's peace when you live it and when you teach it or when you share it. But if you model it without telling it, you will confuse your hearers because the source of your peace remains hidden They'll just think you're on Xanax or something, like most people, some psychotropic, which is sad. And if you tell of God's peace without modeling it, they'll just call you a hypocrite, won't they? It does no good to tell of God's peace and to live an insane, crazy life. Well, you talk about God's peace all the time, but you're probably the most anxious, worrisome person I've ever met. Well, that just doesn't make any sense, does it? You got you to gotta, you gotta do both. You got to live God's peace. You got to tell others about God's peace. And you got to tell people how you acquired it through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that Jesus is our peace. How are you staying cool in the midst of all this stuff that's going on? In the midst of that hurricane in Florida? In the midst of this election? In the midst of that cancer? In the midst of any of these things? In the midst of these endless surgeries for our sister Brenda who just can't seem to get a break? How do you have peace in the midst of it? It's through Jesus Christ who is our peace. That's how you do it, friends. Model it, share it. Number two, he wanted them to know the peace. Number two, to make the goodness of God known to his people. Now we look at verse two. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
Nebuchadnezzar had witnessed incredible signs and wonders, things that we will likely never, ever see, although I will say the conversion of a person is probably the most marvelous of all. But he saw things that we didn't see, people being delivered in fires and dreams that I'm like, what? That sounds like a Star Trek episode. I have no idea what you're talking about. He saw things and signs and wonders that just mind-boggling Mysterious dreams, supernatural interpretation, supernatural deliverance from a fiery furnace. And according to his testimony, right there in verse 2, God had done those things for him. Look at the end of the verse. He didn't say, I just saw a bunch of cool things happen that God did. He's saying, God did those things for me. Man, he looked at it like this. The signs and wonders... Okay, the things that he experienced, the things that he witnessed from God, they led to his humiliation and conversion, thus proving to him that God had good intentions for him all along. Do you understand what I've just said? He looked at his life and the things that he went through. And let me tell you, we're going to look about how he became a grazing animal in chapter 4. That's not a very dignifying, fun thing to do, to lose your mind to that point. And he looks at that experience as God's goodness for him, to get him to the place of humility and repentance and faith. This is astounding. I can literally look back throughout my life and all of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I can, see, I can see that it was all a pathway of grace leading to mercy and salvation. And that's what he's testifying to here. He did these things for me. He's good. Wait a minute. You were a horse in a pasture eating. How can that be good? Because that's not who I am right now and I'm a saved saint. Man, he could see that his past experiences, even the most difficult things he went through, were all part of a pathway of grace leading to God's mercy, forgiveness, and peace. He truly believed that God had been good to him throughout it all, and he wanted his people to know that. This God of mine is good. And Christian witnessing has to do with making God's goodness known to those around us, right? Not just His peace, but also His goodness. We are to speak of His goodness and describe what the Most High God has done for us. Now you can do this by telling folks about how He loves you and gives you endless mercy and grace. I think Mike said it earlier, His joys or His mercies are new every day today. He began the service with that, hallelujah. You can tell them, you can tell others about how He provides for you and cares for your family. Maybe you're wrestling with provision and things like right now. It's hard. Times are tough. They are for most of us. This isn't the best economy. But you're still eating. You're still drinking. you still got clothes on you. Most of you still got a job or some form of employment. Well, he's not good unless you have all of that amplified to the highest level. For crying out loud, the Scripture says, don't, don't make me wealthy and don't make me poor. Let me be right in the middle, Lord. That way I can honor you. I don't want to become wealthy and forget about you. I don't want to become poor and become a thief. Oh, you're provided for, person. More so than 95% of the world's population. You are rich. You can tell people about how He provides for you and cares for your family. You can 
Tell them about how He protects you and gives you peace. Hopefully you've got that peace. You can tell them about His wonderful presence and unspeakable joy. In His presence is joy forevermore. His presence is the place of ultimate joy. That's the ultimate goal of heaven, is to be in His presence and to experience this unspeakable joy forever and ever and ever without one hiccup. You can tell them about how He is with you in the midst of fiery trials. Didn't we just read about that? You can tell them about how the pathway of grace, you can tell them about how the pathway of grace, that you've kind of walked and, and, and been through, that how your whole life was a pathway of grace, and how He kind of threaded everything together, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to draw you to Himself and to make you His own. You can tell people about that. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing here. Follow Nebuchadnezzar's example. Make the goodness of God known to those around you. Quick recap. We have covered the primary objectives. Uh, one and two, to make the peace of God known to His people and to make the goodness of God known to His people. Let's uh, begin to kind of wrap it up with number three. And this is in verse three, to make the supremacy of God known to His people. Verse 3, this is highly important because you are in a polytheistic culture, meaning a lot of gods. It is very important that a Christian who operates in the midst of a polytheistic culture, Babylon, America, that we make sure to convey and to communicate the supremacy of the living one true God. I'm not telling you there's other gods. People think there are, but there aren't. But it's imperative that we portray and proclaim our God as supreme and separate and different and holy. No other gods really claim to even be holy. None of the astral deities did. That wasn't even something they tied to it. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders, exclamation point. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Wow! That's a doxology. That's a praise statement. That's just straight worship. Now again, idolatry was rampant in Babylonia. Nebuchadnezzar helped to perpetuate it for about 40 years, didn't he? As long as he ruled up till the end, man, he was just helping everyone to get into them false gods, doing all that he could. Yet after his conversion, I believe he realized that there is only one true God and he is truly supreme, or as he liked to put it over and over in his letter, most high. In verse 3, he listed four things that really illustrate and declare God's supremacy. I call them the four his is. Plural. I know it's probably not even a word, but his is. What, is he, what does he list? His great signs, his mighty wonders, his everlasting kingdom and His enduring dominion. Great signs speak of God's supreme wisdom. That's what He means. Think about the intricacy of these dreams that He gave Nebuchadnezzar and then the intricacy of the interpretations. Only a Most High Supreme God could come up with some of this stuff. Those dreams and their interpretations and the deliverance and all of the things that happened in Babylon during Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's day, they all illustrate and point to God's infinite wisdom. Somebody so far beyond my astral deities or any person that I've ever met, there's no way they could come up with this stuff. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. 
Great signs speak of God's supreme wisdom. Mighty wonders speak of God's supreme what? Who works mighty? Who, what, what does it mean to work a mighty wonder? You have to have something to be able to work a wonder that's mighty to the level that we've seen these. What do you have to have? You've got to have something that begins with a P. Power. And God is omnipotent. All powerful. Everlasting kingdom speaks of God's supreme glory, right? Like, if you're a king and your kingdom will never end, then you are ultimately glorious. And there's only one kingdom that will stand for eternity, and that's the kingdom of God. Remember? Remember the statue? You got the gold, you got the silver, you got the bronze, you got the iron. They all get dashed to pieces and blown up by the stone. And the stone grows and it multiplies and all that. What, is, what was the dream illustrating? What was the interpre- interpretation illustrating? There is a kingdom coming that belongs to a God who is supremely glorious over every earthly ruler and kingdom. That's what it means. And enduring dominion speaks of God's supreme sovereignty because dominion always translates as rule Man, his great signs, right? His supreme wisdom, his mighty wonders, his supreme power, his, his, oh, where's it at? His enduring, no, no, his everlasting kingdom, his supreme glory, glorious over all, and his enduring dominion, his supreme sovereignty. That is the God that Nebuchadnezzar wants his people to come to know. And Christian witnessing has to do with making the supremacy of God known to those around us. Amen. We are to speak of his great signs. We are to speak of his mighty wonders. All the things that, that Nebuchadnezzar lays out here for us and so much more. We are to speak of his supreme sovereignty on and on and on. And I'll tell you what, if it's too hard for you, and it often is, to remember these things when trying to communicate to people who God is, if it's too difficult to remember and to communicate these sort of weighty things, just tell them that Jesus is better than dope. Just tell them that Jesus is really, literally, in the deepest sense, better than sex. He is. He truly satisfies. Think about Jesus as being better than everything else. All of the endless things that people pursue and try to fill the void with. Just tell them that Jesus is better. Right? Maybe you can't sit down with somebody and say, you know, I'm going to have some coffee with him. I'm going to talk about God's supreme sovereignty with you for a moment. They're like, was that Spanish? Just tell them that Jesus is the highest ruler and that there's no end to his kingdom, that he's better than presidents. It's not that hard, you know, just to tell people that, man, Jesus Jesus is better than false religion, sinful pleasure. He's better than dope. He's better than money. He's better than stuff. He's better than everything else. And quite frankly, he's given us some of those other things to be used in such a way that honor him. And then those things become really, really good and not such an entanglement in your own death. Don't think that I'm preaching against sex. Sex is a gift from him. When it's done in the context of marriage, It glorifies and honors him, and it's wonderful. But when we take it upon ourselves to engage in these sorts of things in an illicit way, in a way that is not what God tells us to do, then they become our own noose. 
And they perpetuate hopelessness. And just tell them Jesus is better. He is. Closing. We have reached the end. I just was marveling at this text, just thinking, who would have ever known there was so much packed in these three little verses? And I suspect we just barely even scratched the surface. We could probably look at them over and over and over and over again. I tell you, I probably must have read this text about 20 times because I was off last Sunday. I must have read this, these three verses maybe 20, 30 times over the course of two weeks. And I, I didn't realize it contained a blueprint for evangelism. I didn't even realize really that it was Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in any of these deeper details here until I kind of sat down and started writing. It's an amazing text. My closing exhortation to you would be this. Martin Luther once said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You want me to read that again to you? This is his interpretation of James 2.17 which he had a hard time with for many, many years. In fact, Roman Catholics have tried to say that he tried to throw the book of James out of the canon. He never did that. He just wrestled with, there was great tension in his life. He could not harmonize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with James 2, 17 for a long time. He couldn't figure out how faith and works work together. So he had a hard time with James 2, 17, which talks about faith without works is dead. He had a hard time. But over time, because of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to harmonize them you don't, say what I, you don't say what I just read if you don't understand how they work. You've got to understand how grace and works and all that work out. Again, I'll read it again. We are saved by faith alone, which means not by our works. But the faith that saves is never alone. Now, if we are true Christians, our faith will not be alone. It will be accompanied by things like holiness and the fruits of the Spirit. It will be accompanied by obedience to the Word of God. God commands that we reach the nations beginning in our own communities, doesn't He? We already went over that. Be like Nebuchadnezzar. I wouldn't have said that prior to chapter 4. Be anything other than him. And in chapter 4, we can see that he's a changed man. Now you can be like him. We've been trying to follow the example of Daniel and the three buddies and all that through the whole book so far. Guess what? Now you can begin to model what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. Share your testimony with someone this week. Tell them about God's peace, about God's goodness, about God's supremacy. Just, just tell them that Jesus is better, man. He is. He is.